This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, in 1799, George Washington died. And he died at his home, Mount Vernon, in Northern Virginia, at the age of 67. News of his passing touched people around the world, far beyond America's stature in the world at the time. Remember, we were a very, very young country. But Americans everywhere were mourning. We all know George Washington's name, but do we really know about him? Let's turn to historian David McCullough, two Pulitzers, two National Book Awards, Presidential Medal of Freedom. Who was George Washington, and how did he lead? He wasn't an intellectual. He wasn't a great speaker or a brilliant writer. He wasn't, as a military leader, a a brilliant tactician or or strategist. But he had the capacity to make people want to follow him. And and if there was a more courageous human being who ever lived, I don't know who it was. And it was the courage of his convictions. And he would not quit. Uh, Every every sign was it was over you've lost give up it's not worth it but no he he wouldn't stop and he was the same kind of a unifying force when he became president maybe more so you know it it didn't just come to us out of the sky it just these advantages we have this system of life and government and our freedoms didn't just happen Somebody had to work hard and suffer, and many of them, of course, died to make it happen. And the doubters were all around. It wasn't as if everybody was, oh, this is a wonderful thing, let's, let's go out and fight for it. A fraction of the country was for it. A fraction of the country was willing to serve in the army. I think maybe if there's a message in Washington's life, it's that, it's that willingness to serve and not just talk about what you're going to do, but to act. It takes both. And uh, absolute selfless service to the country in, as they said, war and peace for no pay, nothing in it for him. And then when he gets the ultimate power, as almost nobody could imagine, he gave it up willingly of his own choice. And... uh, This was after the war was over and he'd won. He was the conquering general. He was the hero. He could have been anything he wanted, czar, king, potentate, whatever. He could have made the presidency into a totally different kind of office. But he relinquished power. He said, no, I'm going back to Mount Vernon. And when George III heard that he might, he, George Washington, might do that, he said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. And uh, because nobody had done that before. This was the, the ultimate uh, uh, ideal of Cincinnatus, you know, that uh, you, the, the conquering general, the conquering hero returns to the plow. Back in the Revolutionary Warrior, our nation was at best an underdog. What were the odds that Washington faced? Well, when the British arrived in uh, the lower bay, of New York, New York Harbor, and when they came up into the bay with a force of ships, it was the largest single armada ever seen in the 18th century. Largest armada ever sent forth to 
suppress a, another people in another part of the world in, in all of history up until then. There had never been anything like it. And, it, and they landed 32,000 troops on Staten Island, which was more than the entire population of the largest city in the colonies, which was Philadelphia. And when they came ashore at Long Island, they defeated our army. The largest battle of the, of the Revolutionary War was fought on Long Island, and it was a disaster. And the retreat that followed uh, was uh, brilliant. Uh, they escaped at night from uh, Long Island, from Brooklyn Heights, which was sort of the Dunkirk of the Revolution, um, a masterful demonstration of leadership on Washington's part because an orderly retreat, even for an experienced army, is the most difficult maneuver to make. And to make it with an inexperienced army at night across the East River, which isn't a river at all but a tidal estuary, uh, was almost uh, beyond imagining. And, and again, the British woke up the next day, as they had in Boston, to discover the guns on Dorchester Heights, to discover that this army they were chasing had vanished. Now. That's, it was brilliant and it was masterful, but you don't win wars by retreating, and that's all they did for the rest of that year was, uh, was retreat. And the army kept getting smaller and smaller by the time uh, they were down in New Jersey, getting close to the Delaware River. Uh, the the uh, size of Washington's army was only about 5,000, and probably only 3,000 of those men were fit for duty. And here, here comes the British uh, juggernaut uh, with the... Uh, you know, 25, 30,000 men if they needed it. And uh, that was the time that, as uh, Thomas Paine said, that tried men's souls. And uh, Washington managed to get across the river, and then he took stock, and people were saying, look, it's over, and we've lost. But he refused to see it that way, and so what he did, what is often what one has to do when all hope's gone, he attacked. And he, that's when he crossed the Delaware, Christmas night and struck at Trenton and won, and then a few days later turned around and struck at Princeton and won. Now those weren't big battles, they were engagements, but the fact that he'd won, the fact that they had defeated this foe was of immense importance to morale all through the country, and that really was not just a turning point in the revolution or in our history, it was a turning point in world history, because it wasn't going to be the same again after that. And that was force of, force of character force of something inside that man and those people around him, Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox, John Glover and others like that, and the men in the ranks, um, who were few and they had no clo adequate clothing and then some of them had no shoes and uh, men died. Men froze to death that night on the march to Trenton, just dropped dead from, from exposure in the army, in the, on the march. And, uh, and he held it together. It's, it's amazing. Celebrating George Washington's life by celebrating his death. He died today on this day in history in 1799. More with David McCullough. And by the way, we'll bring you Washington's farewell address at the end of this hour. It's as relevant today as it was then. The things he was talking about when he left office. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. We continue with the life of George Washington. He died on this day in history in 1799. And we've been hearing from David McCullough about Washington as a leader facing daunting odds. But what shaped this leader? What was Washington like as a young man? He wasn't always successful. There's an idea that we have, I suppose it comes from people who are born athletes or born musical uh, uh, virtuosos or whatever, that he had to work hard to become George Washington. It wasn't easy. He suffered defeat. He made mistakes. He made blunders. Um, He was frustrated in his ambitions uh, again and again as a young man. He had a lot to learn. Uh, He had to... uh, he, he had to uh, get, go to the wilderness, which he did. I mean, that's something people don't understand. If you, you talk about someone getting into outward bound, let's say. This was the most outward bound young man in uh, Virginia uh, in his day, when it was real wilderness and real uh, adversity uh, living uh, uh, with on the land or in the wilderness. And his, um, his resilience, physical, more, mental, uh, spiritual, this guy could really take it. And uh, and yes, he does sometimes resort to self-pity in his letters, and yes, he can at times not tell the entire truth, and yes, he uh, uh, can let people down, and he's a human being. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Look, if they were gods... They wouldn't deserve much credit, would they? Because gods can do whatever they want. These are human beings who did what they did. That's what makes it a story, and that's what makes it uh, an encouraging story, an inspirational story, if I may use that word. As Washington grew older, he broadened his interests and refined the character traits apparent in his youth. And here was a man who too few people understand, uh, Loved interior decoration, loved uh, architecture, loved landscape design, was an avid uh, uh, agriculturalist, as they called it then, who, uh, who was fastidious about his clothing, his appearance. He had all kinds of human traits that are extremely interesting and revealing. Um, everybody says he was a fox hunter. Well, what kind of a fox hunter was he? He was the kind of fox hunter that was out there at the front, as close to the hounds as you could get, very dangerous place to be, and who would not give up. He would fox hunt for seven, eight hours until they'd got the fox. He just was that kind of a person, tenacious. Well, you know, if you're going to be in a fight, that's a good kind of leader to have. And, of course, we have always, as I suppose every nation and people have in all time, we admire that kind of leadership and courage, and particularly if it's in a cause that's just and a cause that's far beyond his own self-aggrandizement or enrichment of any kind. So just how important was this tenacious leader in the American Revolution? Well, he was the leader... He was the commander-in-chief. He was the, uh, the, the winning general, in simplest terms. He won. Took a lot of good luck and help of the French, and it took a long time, the longest war in our history, except for Vietnam. 
And then once we had won, he became the stabilizing factor in the divisiveness that immediately emerged between the regions, particularly north and south. And, uh, and he held the country together for eight years as president. And they, this isn't something that later day scholars have, uh, have imposed on the, on the material from the past. This is in what they were saying then. He is what's holding us together. He was the, the force of unity. And at that stage, we needed that desperately because there were all kinds of forces outside and inside that were trying to break it up. Europe would have loved to have seen us break up. The faster, the better. What can we learn today from this revolutionary period? One of the lessons of any great creative effort is that it takes all kinds of people to make it happen. And it took all kinds of people to make the miracle of the creation of the United States of America happen. And they weren't the same. They brought different qualities, different abilities, different talent. What Washington brought was the, was the gift of leadership, the gift of courage, leadership, character, conviction, willpower. We will make it happen. And there's no limit to what can be accomplished with goodwill and hard work. And that's a tonic, you know, that's a powerful message, particularly for a people that are struggling just to, to, make a, to, to make a start. Does all this mean George Washington is our greatest president? I don't believe much in ranking presidents. I, 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 are you ranking them as a human being? Are you ranking them as a politician? Are you ranking them in... Uh, in view of what they accomplished. There's so many criteria, so many measurements. But Washington was our greatest president. He was the one at the start. He held it together and he set the example. He, he was the defining model of what the president should be and do. We could not have been more fortunate. I mean, you talk about good luck. Good heavens what he could have been, what he could have done that would have been so detrimental, so um, disruptive. And uh, now Lincoln's great gift was a gift of soul, a depth of soul. And, and once again, he held the country together and fought a war uh, successfully to free people from bondage. And, uh, but uh, Washington is there at the beginning. And the, and the Revolutionary War is the most important war in our history because that's how we came to be. What should we know about Washington today? He held the country together, held the cause together, and did so um, in a way that sets an example for behavior as a citizen that we can all learn from and that his picture really should be along with Abraham Lincoln back in every schoolroom as it used to be and uh, this isn't ancestor worship or this isn't uh, uh, old-fashioned um, history this is the, this is reality this is the truth and uh, to be indifferent to people like Washington, to be uninterested in people like Washington, is really a form 
in part, of ingratitude. We ought to be down on our knees every day thanking God that we are part of this country. And we ought to know about the people who made it possible and thank them, in effect, by showing interest in them. And, uh, and their world, their time, I can't overemphasize that. The 18th century is one of the most interesting periods in all of human history. And it's full of tumult and change, just as ours is. And one, mother, one other thing, I think any time we get down and we think, oh, we're living in such a dangerous, uh, difficult, uncertain time, oh, woe is us, uh, excuse me, it's, we've been through far worse than we're going through now. Uh, with far greater adversity, far more imminent danger, imminent danger. Uh, we, have, um, we have suffered more. We have known uh, darker clouds on the horizon by far than we do now. And we've come through it. And we will again. And let's draw from that example. Draw strength from, strength from history. History is a source of strength and should be. And Washington, of course, individually as a human being and as a as a figure in history is one of the protagonists of our story is a is a is a particularly uh, um, striking example of history as a source of strength and indeed it is true it is a source of strength for all of us no matter how tough the times many americans have seen much tougher we did pearl harbor my goodness tougher times you think Battle of the Bulge, tougher times, Civil War. Let me show you and read to you how David McCullough started off 1776. It was January 14, and it was General George Washington in a memoir, a note to himself. The reflection upon my situation and that of this army produces many an uneasy hour when all around me are wrapped in sleep. Few people know the predicament we are in. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More on the life of George Washington, who died on this day in history in 1799. And as always, our This Day in History segments are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, George Washington died in 1799. And I went to law school at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, and that's Jefferson's University. And about 90 minutes north, right outside of Washington, D.C., is Mount Vernon, Washington's home. If and when you get a chance to go to Washington, D.C., make sure you take that short car or cab ride out to Mount Vernon it's spectacular and take a bike ride it's amazing, it's beautiful right along the Potomac so much of it preserved the way it would have been when Washington was alive and in 2013 David McCullough gave the keynote address at the opening 
of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington at Mount Vernon. This extraordinary library is a project of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, and Gayhart Gaines chaired the fundraising campaign for that library. In 2010, they set the ambitious goal of raising $100 million. In about three years, they raised 106, and not a penny from the government, all private donations. And it was simple. The Mount Vernon Ladies Association had, for all those years, done a magnificent job preserving the grounds. But the question became, what about the ideas? What about the story? And what about creating a place where scholars and researchers could come? And so they did it. And it's a 45,000-square-foot facility chock full of Washington's books, manuscripts, 1,500 books from the 18th century, and thousands of records from the 19th. And so in this speech, here is McCullough, the best American historian. There's no one like him. He's a national treasure. And in this speech, marking the opening of the library, McCullough framed the study of history in brilliant and simple terms. History is about people. It's not about dates and quotations and provisos and so forth. It's about people. History is human. When, in the course of human events, the operative word there is human. And if you begin to see those who preceded us as human beings who did not know how everything was going to turn out or how anything was going to turn out, because for them as for us, there was no such thing as the foreseeable future. Never was, never will be. They did not know they were going to win the Revolutionary War. By all logical, realistic uh, observation, there was almost no chance we could win the Revolutionary War. We had no Navy. We had no Army to speak of, all amateurs in effect. And we had no money. And we were up against the most powerful nation on earth, who were our people. And yet, we brought it off. A miracle. Call it the hand of God, call it fate, call it luck. A miracle. As was the man who led that turning point in history. McCullough reminds us that on paper, Washington wasn't even close to perfect, or even that impressive at first. So what made this man great? Imagine only a sixth grade education, relatively little experience in war, and his first great moment was a flop, a failure. In Pennsylvania, he started started the French and Indian War at Fort Necessity. It was a foolish, almost adolescent thing to have done. He made repeated mistakes during the Revolution, but he always learned from his mistakes. And he had the capacity to get up and keep going. When we choose leaders, we should always take a careful look at how they've handled failure, because failure is part of life. Failure is part of history, and it's those people who don't lapse into self-pity or blaming others, but who get back up and keep the faith and keep going. 
And he's the prime example of that. McCullough goes on to say that even though Washington did not have all that much formal education, he certainly studied and knew a great deal. Now, Washington read much more than people seem to understand. And so, in many respects, it's very helpful and revealing to go and look at what he read and what influenced him. One was the great poem by Alexander Pope, Pope's Essay on Man. He read it through and through. So did virtually all of his generation. But he hadn't gone to Harvard. He hadn't gone to uh, William and Mary. Uh, He had learned on his own. And in that magnificent work, there are two lines, which they all knew. And we would do well to remember them today. Act well your part. There all the honor lies. Not power, not glory, not fame, not wealth, honor. A word not too many people use anymore or more discouragingly don't understand. Our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor, honorable conduct, honorable behavior, off stage and on. He set an example of patriotism and he set it again and again by understanding what really motivates people. He loved the theater. Act well your part. Fate, history, call it what you will, has cast you in a very lead role. And you have to imagine a a historic proscenium around you. And you go on that stage and you play your part as you best possibly can. They all knew this line. It's one of the reasons they tried as best they could to act well their part. And with the attitude that, what a chance to be a lead performer in this all-important turning point for the world. It was the idea, the goal, the sense of purpose and achievement that really drove those magnificent people of that day. This tiny little country on the edge of giant wilderness, population of 2,500,000 people, 500,000 of whom were in bondage, slavery. Two million people would produce that kind of a generation, a miracle. Indeed, it is a miracle, and we bring you this hour and many others on Washington. We'll have at least three or four a year because his life warrants those number of hours. Indeed, in a bit, we'll bring you back to the Battle of Yorktown uh, in the final segment, and we'll learn about how long Washington had been away from home, this beautiful home he'd built at Mount Vernon. And it was a long time, the sacrifices he and so many made for us, and that we don't know these stories in this country. Well, it's a tragedy, and we're trying to redress that here on Our American Stories, telling you every kind of story. Act well your part. There well the honor lies. And by the way, what you read, what you have your children read, shapes them. What ideas you put inside people's heads, what stories you put inside them. And that's the other goal here at Our American Stories, to tell the story of America to America. 
because our schools aren't doing it. So we're giving it a shot. More with David McCullough after these messages. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's our final segment in our celebration of the life and death of George Washington. He died on 1799 on this day in history. As always, are this days in history brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can send your kids to learn all the finer things in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you with their terrific online courses. And my goodness, their Constitution 101 class is better than anything I ever took at the University of Virginia School of Law. You learn about the actual Constitution, the Federalist Papers, the great, great minds coming together in this remarkable moment in history. And the 18th century, David McCullough is right. By accident, by divine intervention, or maybe both, or all of the above. A miracle happened in America at this time. Back to Mount Vernon and this speech in 2013 for the opening of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington. And again, get to Mount Vernon if you go to D.C. If your school's going, if the family's going, don't leave it out. And go to the Air and Space Museum. It's wonderful. But there is no Air and Space Museum without George Washington. Always know your people's story. You're lost without knowing your own story. So McCullough focused on one moment in Washington's life as a living embodiment of the man's leadership. We often hear of Washington as a soldier or as a politician, but McCullough wants us to see him as something more. And one of the points I want to make, if at all possible, contribute to George Washington today is that, yes, he was a man of action, if ever there was. And, yes, actions speak louder than words. But not always. Not always. Words can change history. Words can change the outlook of a generation. It's happened again and again. And words can be what motivate the action. One of the most dramatic and telling and crucial scenes in our history because it took place in the Revolutionary War, during the Revolutionary War, on December 31st, 1776, the day that all the, all the uh, recruitment of the Continental Army, all they'd signed up for, expired. 
every single one of Washington's troops as of the next day, January 1st, 1877, was free to go home. And Washington called them out in formation at Trenton on December 31st, and he told them the following. He offered a bounty of $10 for all who would stay another six months after their enlistments expired. A considerable sum, by the way, at that time. And he had done it without any authorization from Congress. And he, as he wrote in a letter afterward to the Congress, I thought at no time to stand on trifles. The soldiers were all lined up, and he approached them on his magnificent horse. A commander rides a, comm a magnificent horse. And he addressed them, and he said in the most affectionate manner that they would get $10. And um, those willing to stay were told to step forward. The drums rolled. Imagine this scene. The drums rolled. Minutes passed, and not one man stepped forward. Not one. That was a great defeat, as any suffered in battle. So what did George Washington do next? He turns on the horse, rides off a little bit, collects himself, turns the horse about, and approaches them again. If that didn't work, I'll try something else. He said the following, my brave fellows, you have done all I ask you to do and more than could be reasonably expected, but your country is at stake, your wives, your houses, and all that you hold dear. You have worn yourselves out with fatigues and hardships, but we know not how to spare you. If you will consent to stay one month longer, you will render that service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you can probably never do under any other circumstance. Again, the drums sounded. The men began stepping forward. As Nathaniel Green wrote, God Almighty inclined their hearts to listen to the proposal, and they engaged anew. Great moment breathtaking moment really happened it's not some playwright's concoction however there was a playwright in the background William Shakespeare whom Washington also read you'll remember Henry V this story shall the good man teach his son we few we happy few we band of brothers England gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here. You are lucky to be here. You are lucky to be able to help your country. And he says, you will provide, render a service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you can probably never do under any other circumstance. Same idea. Now, I can't prove, no one can prove that he drew it from that, but surely that's what it is. Surely it is. And again, it was an appeal to honor, not an appeal to the material. The $10 didn't do it, and it never does. Not the big stuff. That's never what rallies a people, money. 
Again, act well your part. There well the honor lives. And words matter. And McCullough proves that. And so I wanted to share just a couple of things from Washington's farewell address to the country. Because it's just pretty remarkable. In looking forward to the moment which is intended to terminate the career of my public life, my feelings do not permit me to suspend the deep acknowledgement of that debt of gratitude which I owe to my beloved country for the many honors it has conferred upon me, still more for the steadfast confidence with which it has supported me and for the opportunities I have thence enjoyed of manifesting my invaluable attachment by services faithful and persevering, though in usefulness unequal to my zeal. If benefits have resulted to our country from these services, let it always be remembered to your praise as an instructive example in our annals that under circumstances in which the passions agitated in every direction were liable to be misled amidst appearances sometimes dubious, vicissitudes of fortune often discouraging, in situations in which not infrequently want of success has countenanced the spirit of criticism, the constancy of your support was the essential prop of the efforts and a guarantee of the plans by which they were affected. Profoundly penetrated with this idea, I shall carry it with me to my grave. He's thanking the American people for giving him the confidence to do for them what probably only he could do. It's a beautiful story. And this from George Washington's farewell address a bit later on, and again, this is 1796. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest grips and props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for prosperity, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice? And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. And then we get to the close of this remarkable address. Though in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error. I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects, not to think it probable that I may have committed many errors. Whatever they may be, I fervently beseech the Almighty to avert or mitigate the evils to which they may tend. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view them with indulgence, and that after 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with an upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion as myself must soon to be the mansions of the rest. 
relying on its kindness in this as in other things, and actuated by that fervent love towards it, which is so natural to a man who views in it the native soil of himself and his progenitors for several generations, I anticipate with pleasing expectation the retreat in which I promise myself to realize, without alloy, the sweet enjoyment of partaking in the midst of my fellow citizens, the benign influence of good laws under a free government, the ever-favorite object of my heart, and the happy reward, as I trust, of our mutual cares, labors, and dangers. The life of George Washington died on this day in history in 1799. And this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our This Day in History segment, which will be a full hour on the life of Ahmet Ertegen. And I know, you're going, who? And why are you going to spend an hour on this guy? I don't know. Because you know him, you just don't know that you know him. And by the way, Hillsdale College is a place unlike any other in this country, a place where you can study history like nowhere else, but also where you'll study the liberal arts and where you will study beautiful things. And the life of Ahmed Ertegen was, if anything else, beautiful. And one of the great music men in American history, when you find out what artists he signed and developed, what record labels he drove, you're not going to believe one guy did all this. And you're going to feel like, well, what the heck am I doing with my life? Ahmet was born in Istanbul in 1923. His father was Ataturk's legal advisor, and Ataturk was Turkey's first president. So young Ahmet was in pretty heady territory in Turkey. His father was a practicing Muslim who helped to build a secular Turkey and became its ambassador to the United States. This is an irresistible story about what can happen when an American transplant arrives here in this country with a dream. course people besides musicians and they can have as much influence as anyone who sings or plays an instrument in this country and in our time there's a hugely influential man whose name you are probably not familiar with but whose work you know very well so i'll tell you a story that is the way atlantic records founder ahmed erdogan almost always began his conversations we begin our story looking back at the last half century and the Atlantic Sound, which sprang from the small independent record label Ahmed Erdogan co-founded in 1947, single-handedly influencing the future direction of contemporary music. 
Born in Istanbul, Turkey, Ahmet's father became the Turkish ambassador to the United States when Ahmet was just 12. His older brother, Nesrey, introduced Ahmet to jazz and black music when he was only seven. So the move to America was a dream come true. Here's Ahmet. I had never been so happy in my life because I was going to the land of cowboys and Indians, gangsters, beautiful showgirls. I'd seen 42nd Street as a movie, you know, was a fabulous thing with these great girls dancing and everything. And, of course, the greatest thing, the land of jazz. Immediately upon arrival, Amit went looking for the jazz, for the America he and his brother had imagined. Here's Amit recalling the story of his search for Harlem jazz while only in the seventh grade. When I came to New York, I stayed with the Consul General of Turkey, and I heard that they'd seen a particular movie, and I said, I want to see that movie. And they said, well, we've seen that movie, but I, we'll drop you there. We'll go see another movie that's up the street, and then we'll pick you up after the movie's over. I said, great. So they took me to this movie house. Five minutes later, I hailed the first cab. I said, take me to Harlem. The cab driver says, where to in Harlem? I said, I didn't know where to because I thought Harlem was a place where you just go there and everybody is having fun in the streets. I said, no, no, you got to know. I said, well, I want to go, you know, someplace where there's some real good music and everything, you know. So it took me to a place called the Plantation Club. The band was Hot Lips Page. And he was amazed that I knew some of his songs and so forth. And he said, it's terrific. He said, what college do you go to? I was in seventh grade, you know. So I said, I'm going to Harvard, you know. So I said, oh, okay. So he says, he said, well, go sit over there. He says, says uh, I'll send one of the girls to sit with you. So this beautiful chorus girl goes, you know, we ordered some wine and so on. I mean, they did the whole show. Wait a minute. What about the guys who were supposed to pick him up at the movie? I had forgotten about that. The show was fabulous. Beautiful girls, the dancing was her, and the band was fabulous. And, you know, play jazz. And then we'll say it's for the second show. And then the second show's over, and this girl takes me to a rent party. And James P. Johnson is playing the piano. They got all kinds of food going back and forth, and I'm drinking scotch and sodas, you know. And I had met Sidney Bechet through my brother. He was there. I mean, he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, she says, what are you drinking? I said, scotch and soda. He said, you're too young to drink. She grabs out of my hand. He says, here, smoke this. <laughs> so around 6.30, this girl said, what do you want to do? I said, I better go home. <laughs> she says, don't you want to hang out? I said, no, no. <laughs> so boom, I go have a taxi. And apparently, 
the whole New York police force is looking for me. I mean, they've called my father, my mother, goes, out of her mind. I've disappeared. <laughs> they take me with guards on the train with me. I go back. As the only time in my life my father saw me, he gave me a slap across the face. It's the only time he ever hit me because he was so angry. Well, I, you know, but uh, it was impossible to explain to to my parents or to anybody that I, I love jazz. So, you know, it was all for the love of jazz. I wasn't, you know, but I had to get to get there. Coming up after the break, we'll find out where that passion for American jazz carried this 14-year-old Turkish transplant. When we come back. This is Lee Habib. Welcome back. We learned in the last segment about Ahmed Ertegen's family and the story highlighting his love for jazz at a young age. On this day in history, we now continue with the fruits of Ahmet Ertegen's love. I love jazz, so, you know, it was all for the love of jazz. I wasn't, you know, but I had to get, to get there. It was that love which drove Ahmet to spend countless hours digging through old vinyl, eventually acquiring 25,000 records, the largest collection of jazz and blues in the world which he had amassed by going door to door through ghettos and hanging out in black record shops. The Erdogan brothers made history when Ahmet was just 17. Here's Ahmet. In 1940, my brother and I had the first integrated jazz concerts ever given in Washington. We broke the color line in the sense that we had mixed bands and mixed audience. These concerts featured people like Ella Fitzgerald and Duke Ellington. The police would often be called to the embassy and would be dumbfounded to see blacks dining with whites. This wasn't the only time Ahmet had run-ins with the police. In Annapolis, I was going to college. I was 17 years old and I went to hear a band in a black club in Annapolis, and they arrested me when I came out. I asked the judge, what law did I break? He said, you broke the Jim Crow law. I said, is that written down anywhere? He said, no, but everybody understands that. He looked at my name and said, I guess you're a foreigner. That You don't understand what our laws are. I said, I don't consider that a law because it's not written anywhere. Then, in 1947, Ahmet opened Atlantic with Herb Abramson. Here's Ahmet. I was intent on starting a label, so I talked my dentist at the time, I talked him into mortgaging his house and investing $10,000. Ahmet recruited Tom Dowd, a young genius engineer and nuclear physicist who turned his skills producing atomic bombs for the Manhattan Project to engineering records. Ahmet chose staff for Atlantic the same way he chose artists. He listened, he trusted his gut, and he showed unerring good judgment. Pushing back the desks at night, Ahmet would record in a tiny one-bedroom broken-down Manhattan apartment with a creaking floor and a sloping ceiling. 
Here's Billboard music critic turned Atlantic team member, Jerry Wexler. That's where I got some back trouble that lasted me for several decades. And after the session broke down, the desks would move back, and it became an, it became an office again. From the start, Ahmet had a vision of what he wanted to put out on Atlantic. Here's the sort of record we need to make, he once said. There's a black man living in the outskirts of Louisiana. He works hard for his money. He has to be tight with a dollar. One morning, he hears a song on the radio. It's urgent, bluesy, authentic, and irresistible. He can't live without this record. He drops everything, jumps in his pickup, and drives 25 miles to the first record store he finds. We can make that kind of music, we can make it in the business. Because music publishers were not eager, as Ahmet said, to provide material to a hole-in-the-wall company called Atlantic, he began writing songs himself. We had to find some R&B material and put them into a funky groove. So that's why I started to write songs for them, you know, because you couldn't just go to a music publisher and find material. They didn't have any songs for them, so we had to make up those songs. In a recording booth located in a Times Square arcade, Amit would make a vinyl demo of a song that he would then play for the artist in the studio. Using the pseudonym Nugetra, his last name spelled backwards so he would not embarrass his family. Here's Amit. In the very early days of Atlantic, I really thought of this thing as a passing thing. I mean, you know, I was still going to college. I started this label. But I thought that eventually I'd become a civil servant in Turkey like my father and grandfather and so on. And I thought, well, if I ever got involved in politics, yeah. maybe it wouldn't be good for me if somebody found out I'd written a song called I Want to Rock You All Night or something <laughs> like that. Ahmet wrote more than 66 songs, many of them hits, including Ray Charles' Mess Around. Here's Ahmet performing Mess Around for Ray while Ray plays piano. Here's Ray performing it. Now this band's gonna play from nine to one. Everybody here's gonna have some fun doing the mess around. Ah, doing the mess around. Amit also wrote the Clover's hit, Fool, 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 which would later be recorded by Elvis Presley. Here's Amit on writing for the Clover's. So when I got the Clovers, I said, well, I can't get a song. So I forced them to record this song. A miracle happened. I was never in my life so amazed. All I could hear was this song blaring out of all these music shops. And the Clovers did not want to sing it, you know. It was forcing soul on these people, you know. I can't forget you, darling. Dude. The definitive story of their time together, which both Amit and Herb loved to tell, concerned the night in New Orleans when they went to find an unknown genius named Professor Longhair, who was playing in a joint across the river 
where no taxi driver would take them. Their cabbie dropped them off in the middle of a field. After walking a mile in the darkness, they saw a brightly lit house in the middle of town, so full of people that they seemed to be falling out of the windows as music blared. Talking their way past the guy at the door, who assumed they were cops, the pair made their way inside. Out came Professor Longhair, who played a piano with an attached drumhead that he would hit with his right foot. As people danced, Ahmet and Herb could barely contain themselves. An utterly primitive, completely original artist was making a kind of music they had never heard before. Rushing up to Longhair after his set was over, they told him just how much they wanted to sign him to Atlantic. I'm terribly sorry, said Longhair. I signed with Mercury last week. In Amit's version of the story, the pianist then added, but I signed with them as Roland Bird. With you, I can be Professor Longhair. In 1956, Atlantic had their greatest signing to date, the raw and unequal talent of Ray Charles. Here's Ahmed. I was in front of the building where our office was. I ran to Dave Brubeck and he said, what's happening, what's new? I said, you want to hear something new? It was like six o'clock at night or seven. Nobody was in the office. I went up, unlocked the door, took him to my office, and I played him some Ray Charles, you know, piano doodlings and so forth, you know. That is a fabulous player, fabulous player. Who is that? I said, that's Ray Charles. I said, I'd never heard of him, you know. Then in 1967, Amit signed Aretha Franklin. Here's Amit, Jerry Wexler, and Aretha discussing her experience at Atlantic. Jerry Wexler called me up and told me we had a good chance to sign up Aretha Franklin. I said, Aretha Franklin? Now, now you didn't have huge hits mm-hmm. at Columbia. No. But, but you had a wonderful career there. I did. You made some great records Thank there. Thank you. Great records are not always great hits, mm-hmm. but there were mm-hmm. great records. At Columbia, at the time, Goddard Lieberson was the president, yes. and, and to me, he was just a name sitting somewhere in a big office. I never even met him, I don't think. Yes. But when I got to Atlantic, you and Jerry would come down to the studios. You would roll your sleeves up. We would get in there and laugh. I just remember we had a romping, stomping good well, we time. Here's Jerry italicizing Aretha's point. I'd like to point out that Atlantic Records is the only major record company for which the owners actually made records were line producers in the studio making records. During this period, those in charge of Atlantic began to realize that their target audience was no longer rural and black. Rather, it was teenage and white. To put it another way, the blues had a baby, and they called it rock and roll. This is Lee Habib, and when we return to our American stories, we'll take a look at the fruits of that baby called rock and roll, and what direction it took Amit and his company Atlantic Records.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Aretha Franklin. She recorded I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You with the Swampers in Muscle Shoals. And we're talking about the life of Ahmed Ertegen, and he pulled Aretha out of a just a terrible, terrible-sounding career over at CBS Records, and the movie Muscle Shoals, the documentary, has just a remarkable scene where you see Aretha recording with this ragtag bunch of country boys and farm boys, and this is what came out. I love you. Well, we're diving into the fascinating life of an American transplant from Turkey, the founder of Atlantic Records, Ahmet Ertegen. We pick up with Ahmet's new direction for the company. He's getting ready to redirect their hiring in terms of genre, from Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin to rock and roll. It wasn't called Atlantic for nothing. In the mid-1960s, black American music had sparked a musical revolution across the sea. Ahmet checked into Hotel Britannia for a fresh injection of talent. This trip would determine the future of Atlantic Records. Here's Ahmet with the story. I happened to be in London at the Scotch Club where we were giving a party for Wilson Pickett. And my back was to the bandstand and I heard this, this, this really incredible uh, blues guitar player. And I was talking to Wilson, I figured, well, the only person who'd be playing this is this guitar player, who's a southern boy. I said, uh, Wilson, I said, your guitar player is sensational. He said, my guitar player, he said, is having a drink at the bar. And I looked over and he was at the bar. So I turned back and here was this young man with an angelic face, very intent upon his playing and playing blues like B.B. King would play. And I thought, my God, I've never in my life heard anything like this. Eric Clapton, the lead vocalist of Cream, shared all of Ahmet's interests and aesthetics. They were the first Atlantic group that brought the British wave of blues-oriented rock and roll to America. Once again, Atlantic Records was transformed. Here's Ahmet. Take that thing out of here. I liked very much the fact that here were these young English musicians who had been brought up on the blues, on uh, original American black music. Since Ahmed really knew the blues and was sympathetic to it, he was able to recruit and sign blues artists like Clapton and Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page. It was that shared love of American music that really got him substantial entry. Led Zeppelin's Robert Plant examines this with Ahmed. When you heard the black music on the radio, yeah. it got you. Yeah. It not only got you, but you went into more depth of study. And it wasn't a study for you, that was fun. It's but, an obsession for me. That's right. Yeah, I so, love it so, so much. So yeah. when you heard it, you became part of it. Mm, yeah. and it became part of you. We all were basing most of our skills on American musicians. In November of 1968, one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time was signed by Atlantic. Here's Ahmet and Mick Jagger discussing the signing of Led Zeppelin. We never heard the band. 
We'd never heard the demo. Have they actually done anything at that time when you signed them? They hadn't made it. No, that and we it was didn't like know. a band on paper. We didn't man. know the other two members. It was like a band on paper, really. Yeah. I mean, they're all good musicians. And yeah, we, we know we're going to call them the New Yardbirds. That was the name. Yeah, okay. That we're going to call, but uh, they, they changed it to Led Zeppelin. But, I think that was preferable. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how that happened. <laughs> The important thing to understand is the kind of deal that Ahmed originally made with Led Zeppelin was no deal that had ever been done like that before. It was totally different because Led Zeppelin had complete control over the artwork, over the sound of the record. Atlantic, by contract, was not even allowed to go into the studio while they were making a record unless they were invited in. They had control over whether Atlantic could put singles out because they didn't see themselves as a singles-oriented band. Here's Zeppelin's Jimmy Page reflecting with Ahmet on their relationship. Good for you to, for, for sort of letting us get away with certain things. I'll give you a good example with the fourth album, because by that time, we were getting so much bad press over here. And, you know, they were saying it's a hype and it's this and it's that because they didn't understand for one moment what we were doing. And so the reviews were crap. And so by the time it came to the fourth album, we said, right, OK, this is what's going to happen here. We'll put out an album with no name of the band on it, no nothing, and just say, here you are, take it or leave. Well, of course, it was the biggest album we had up to that point. But, you know, it could have just been one of those things that was drawn out. No, the name's got to be on there. No, but in the end, you just went, we OK, let's give much. it a shot. And it was brilliant. You know, thank you for that. It was good. kids came to see me from France and they'd written a book called La Route de Blues The Road of the Blues and they wanted me to write an introduction, a, a, a foreword and these guys were young guys and they were talking about old blues, you know I said, how'd you all learn about the blues? So I said, oh we are Led Zeppelin fans <laughs> In 1970 the Rolling Stones' long-term contract with Decca finally expired. Intent on landing the band, Amit flew to Los Angeles to meet with Mick Jagger at the Whiskey A Go-Go, where Chuck Berry was performing. Before he got there, Amit dined with radio programmer Bill Drake, who challenged him to a drinking contest. Both men chugged several bourbons and then enjoyed a dinner that included some expensive wine and more bourbon. Already jet-lagged, Ahmet dragged himself into the whiskey. When Mick arrived, they drank several toasts. As Mick brought up the Stone's new recording contract, Ahmet's head sagged forward, and he fell asleep at the table. Not long after that, the Rolling Stones joined Atlantic. Here's Ahmet recounting the story. There are a lot of stories about me falling asleep. I fell asleep many times. One of the times was when Mick was telling me that the group had decided they wanted to record for Atlantic. Uh, as he was telling me that, I dozed off because, you know, when I hear very loud music, uh, uh, if I'm tired, it's, it makes me kind of doze off. They carried me out of that club. <laughs> That's one of the reasons that Mick wanted to sign with Atlantic. Man, we've, we've got to be with this guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he hates pushy people. <laughs> Rolling Stone founder and editor 
Jan Wenner, confessed, in the end, it was always, what does Amit think? Because Amit had the vision. Everyone deferred to Amit's taste, his judgment, his knowledge. Here's Amit. My basic philosophy in making a record is I always start thinking about the end product and what effect that will have on a potential listener. So you really start with the effect that you're trying to produce. That effect was success. Atlantic in the 80s had become a very different place. The independent record company he started was now part of a global music industry grossing over five billion dollars, nearly twice that of the movie industry. This is Lee Habib, and when we return, we will conclude with Ahmed Ertegen's story as head of Atlantic Records. And this is Our American Stories. And this day in history is brought to you by Hillsdale College, a great place to send your child. If you're interested in the arts, if you're interested in liberal arts, if you're interested in history. And when we come back, again, the rest of the story of Ahmad Ertigan, born this day. We'll be right back. This is Lee Habib. Welcome back. We're wrapping up this amazing story of Ahmad Ertigan, president of Atlantic Records. You're listening to Led Zeppelin, the Willie Dixon cover, I Can't Quit You, Babe, on the very first Led Zeppelin album, a discovery of Ahmad Ertigan. We begin with Atlantic in the 1980s. Atlantic in the 80s had become a very different place. The independent record company he started was now part of a global music industry, grossing over $5 billion, nearly twice that of the movie industry. Amit, now in his 60s, never lost his ear for talent. Here's Phil Collins and Amit. As well as being a friend, you're also this person that... I had grown up admiring and, and, and eventually got to know and eventually grew to love this person. And you were there you were saying, you must make this record. And anything you can do to help me make it, you will do. And I went away like from that meeting just like feeling ten feet tall because obviously I was brand new. The most fun is when you sit in a studio and you suddenly hear magic happening. In other words, you hear a sound and you say, oh my gosh, this is something that the general public cannot deny. I got a copy of that record before it came out. I remember very well because I started to play that as an example of what a hit record sounds like to people who would bring me a record saying, 
listen to this record, and they play what they thought was a great record. I said, I said, well, that's pretty good. Now listen to this record. And they would say, wow, what is that? Right? And it was, I said, that's a hit record. Although much has changed, success still comes down to the quality of a song that people want to hear again so badly that they will happily pay for the privilege. Better than anyone, Amit Erdogan understood that need, having experienced it himself from the time he was a child. Amit was fond of saying, the best way to predict the future is to make it. And make it he did. He helped create the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1983 for many reasons, not the least of which was that half the people he loved most in the world could be in it. Times change, and so does music. But passion for music and the ability to spot talent has not changed for Amit. Here's Kid Rock and Amit. I just signed with Atlantic. And they booked me at some gig with all these Hollywood people. We're coming, you know, one of those gigs where everybody doesn't care who's playing. And Amit stood in the front and, and watched me. He was doing his show. Party. At a party, right? You're the only one that watched me and play. I tell you. It wasn't a rock and roll show. It was a rock and roll experience. Come on, y'all, tell me what's my name. And I tell you, the crowd witnessed something that they had never seen before. A little louder. He was doing everything. Piano, drums, guitar, boom, boom, rapping, singing ballads. I just stood there, my mouth open. I said, well, this man is something else. And he is something else. And my first manager, man, I said, you're going to be bigger than Elvis Presley. You are, you are something else. Uh, and he was unknown then. I like you too. Thank <laughs> <laughs> <Like> you. <laughs> it's most interesting when you have a vision of an artist achieving a certain kind of musical climax on a record. It's a big payoff for people who love being involved in the creation of it. That's been my biggest driving force. He seems like one of the only people that really just loves music. Everybody else wants to, how are we going to market this record and where are we going to put it out and this, that, and the other. He's like, yeah, man, turn it up. That Amit died December 14th, 2006, at age 83 from a fall suffered backstage at a Rolling Stones concert, is an ending too perfect for any self-respecting Hollywood screenwriter to have written. But that's the story, as only Amit could have told it. Here's Amit. The soul of jazz is blues, and the soul of rhythm and blues is blues. So blues is really the fountainhead of all these kinds of music. You know, we make all these artificial distinctions. In my mind, it's really black American music and the white imitation thereof. Georgia, the whole day through. The important thing, I, th I think, is that when my brother and I were young kids and we first came to America, 
We were great jazz fans. And we loved American music, black American music. At a time when black singers and black musicians were not generally helped by society in America. We tried and were able not only to help them, but to build something ourselves. Are you really gonna make me cry? A label which devoted a lot of its energy to jazz and blues and rock and roll. That's what I'm talking about. There is a point at which all this music comes together. The blues, the music of the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s. The music that Louis Armstrong heard when he was growing up. And that enabled him to express so much feeling in his music. All of that was part of something that Nesri and I felt and, and that Somehow, against all odds, we were able to make something out of it, and I'm proud of that. But I'm most proud of the artists that helped us do that. The real reason Amit will be remembered is because by dedicating his life to music, Amit Erdogan gave people all over the world, many of whom still do not know his name, the soundtrack of their lives. This day in history. Thank you, Arnold. Congratulations, Arnold. Thank you very much. Just a great job on that, Greg. Great job, team. What a life story. A young kid, a Turkish immigrant, comes to this country, starts a record label in 1947. Look, there were some acts here and there, but there was one act that helped build this label. And his name, well, Ray. I gamble on your love, baby And got a losing hand I gamble on your love, baby Yes, and got a losing hand Your ways keep changing Like the shift in desert sand Go back if you can. Get the complete Ray Charles A&R sessions. It's five discs, and you can't stop listening to just about the most perfect blues music you've ever heard. Raw, simple, and a label was launched. And I think because he signed Ray... This was the allure that dragged in all those British boys. The Stones, Plant, Eric Clapton. Again, a kid from Turkey goes up to Harlem and just starts knocking on doors, visiting clubs, and builds this multi-billion dollar empire and brings so much joy and life and does so much for black musicians. In this country. Let's hear some more from Ray Charles. I thought I'd be your king, baby. Yes, and you could be my queen. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. If you'd like to hear this or anything else you've heard, go to ouramericannetwork.org. And this is brought to you, as always, by Hillsdale College. Where you did me pretty, baby. I declare I'll never understand. Got a loop.